All right. Thank you, Leon. Hey, if you have your Bibles, uh, grab them. If you have a phone, I guess grab that. If you have a phone, of course you have a phone. Um, and uh, open up your Bible app because I think it will be helpful for you to kind of uh, read along with what we're talking about today. Um, I don't know if you were big fans of literature in high school, uh, but I enjoyed like a teacher being able to take like a book that I was just like, what is this going on? And then be able to explain kind of behind the scenes and help me understand like what the author was trying to do. And I think there's something similar going on in the passage of scripture we're going to read today. So first of all, this scripture is, it's awesome. I love it. Um, but I think it's particularly relevant for our current cultural moment. And I, I might think that about all scripture. I think scripture is always relevant. Uh, but I think there's some things it has to say in particular for us. Um, but then thirdly, this is something I don't know that we think about very often with the Bible, but it's kind of I shouldn't say kind of funny. It's, it's a hilarious passage of scripture, and uh, you're going to be able to relate to it, I think. So if you have your Bibles, Mark chapter 8 is where we're going to be, Mark chapter 8. Um, and I want to tell you a story, um, and I'm going to actually tell you three stories that are kind of um, separated when we read them, but they're actually uh, woven together by the author of Mark, and I think you're going to appreciate what he's trying to do. In order to get us to the moment properly, I think we have to do just a brief recap of what has happened in the last two chapters. This is stuff that you learned in Bible class, in Sunday school, from when you were the littlest kid in class. These are the stories the teachers always pick out in the life of Jesus in the last two chapters. So there, there's four things that happened. The first thing that happened is Jesus fed um, 5,000 people. You remember that story? Does any any, any Bible uh, nerds in here remember how many loaves of bread and fish in that story? He fed 5,000 people? Anybody? Any? Hint, hint, hint. Five. Yeah. Five loaves of bread. 5,000 people, five loaves of bread. So that would have been pretty amazing. Like, I mean, it would have been like watching that magician pull, you know, the scarves out of the hat or whatever. Like, he just keeps reaching in and pulling out more bread. And here's a piece for you and a piece for you. And you're just like, what in the world? So that's a big story. It's a good one. Um, and then following that, right after that, he walked on water. That's a big one, too. Like, when you think of Jesus, like, moments walking on water. That's a, that's a good one. And then, right after that, he healed two people, um, pretty typical for Jesus, but like, yeah, here's a miraculous healing, here's a miraculous healing. So, feeding 5,000, walking on water, a couple miraculous healings, and then, you know what he tops all that off with? He feeds another 4,000 people. It's like the sequel. Everybody loved the first one so much that he comes, they come back. 4,000 people. Does anybody remember how many loaves of bread that time? Oh, okay, I think we caught you. Seven loaves of bread that time. I know, you were saying it in your mask and it was muffled, we couldn't hear you. Seven loaves of bread. So that's the story up to the verse that we're going to read. 5,000 people fed by bread, walking on water, healing people, another 4,000 people uh, fed by Jesus. If Jesus had a greatest hits album, these are all the hits. He's got the crowd, and he, these are all the things that Jesus does that we think of when we think of the iconic moments of Jesus. So with that, turn to Mark chapter 8, and we're going to start in verse 11. He is fresh off the miracle of the 4,000, feeding the 4,000. Mark chapter 8, verse 11. The Pharisees, and if there's a soundtrack, this is where it goes, dun, dun, dun. Because the Pharisees, it's like nothing ever good happens. There's never any good moments when it says the Pharisees are coming. The Pharisees came and they began to question Jesus, to test him. They asked him for a sign from heaven. And the text literally says, if you have your Bibles open, if you have your apps open, the text literally says, Jesus sighed deeply. 
That is Jesus sitting there. The Pharisees come to him, tap him on the shoulder, and like, hey, Jesus, prove that you're legit. Prove that you're real. And Jesus is like, you have got to be kidding me. Prove yourself. Now, I want you to think about this because that is a moment. That, it's an emotional moment where I can relate to Jesus totally. I feel that. I think every parent who has been on a road trip and is trying to make good time with their family and you stop at a gas station to, to load up on gas, maybe get a few snacks, and you tell your kids, like, this is the last stop for 5,000 miles. You have to go to the bathroom. And the kids are like, nope, we don't have to go. We're good. And you're like, if you, I'm serious. There's a cup in the back seat because we are not stopping again. You better go now. And the kids are like, no. And you get back on the entrance ramp to the highway and one kid says, I got to go, Dad. Why didn't you say so 20 seconds earlier? Why didn't you have to go yet? And that's a, and a dad just, oh, come on. Or this is a teacher who has told the kids what is going to be on the test, has sent home notes to the parents, has emailed the parents, has, has done 15 different ways of communicating to the parents that this is something their kid needs to do or know or to bring in, and then still gets that angry email from the mom or the dad saying, you're the reason why my Johnny isn't doing well in school, and the teacher deeply sighs. Ah. This week, earlier this week, I had to make uh, two calls to a government agency um, to give them information that I have already given them previously. They couldn't find it or lost it or didn't remember that or I talked to the wrong person or whatever. So I had to call them and they said, all right, here's, uh, here's what you need to do. And I'm like, you guys have this information. I've sent this information. Now, the problem is, is you don't just call and talk to a person. You call and you have to navigate a robotic system. You have to press one if you want to hear the menu and pick Latin. You have to press two if you want to talk to someone who will disconnect you immediately when they're trying to do something else. You have to press three if you want to spend another 40 minutes on the phone, right? You know, like you felt that. Deep sigh, like you're kidding me. But then on the other end of the line is someone who works for that government agency, and they're trying to input all of this information into a Windows 1995 system that barely works, and they don't have good internet, and nothing. Everybody is yelling at them all day. And I thought, like, it's no wonder that government employees only work from nine to four. You can only handle so much yelling. Like, it's just, it would just be too much. So they only work six hours a day. Deep sigh you can feel that in this moment jesus is like you guys pharisees come on you literally are wiping the crumbs of a miracle off your face that sandwich you're holding is between two slices of miracle and you're asking for a sign come on now what does jesus do in this moment these people are willfully blind they don't really want an answer and you had conversations like that with someone they don't really want an answer they're just challenging you they're willfully blind and so how does jesus respond to these guys that don't really want to get it they don't really want to know the truth they want credit for being open-minded but they have their minds made up so how does jesus react to people like this what does he do in the face of self-imposed spiritual blindness blindness verse 12 he sighed deeply and he said actually he asked but he said why does this generation ask for a sign and then he says truly i tell you no sign will be given to it then he left in fact, the story is hilarious because Jesus had literally just left on the boat to go to one side of the lake. He gets to that side of the lake. The Pharisees are like, show us a sign. And he's like, nope, not going to do it. And he gets in a boat and goes back over to the other side of the lake. That's how much he didn't want to have this conversation with these guys because they did not want to get it. 
Have you ever had a conversation like that with someone who did not want to get it? My mom's nodding because that was me in high school. That's not me now. I'm totally different. <laughs> but did not want to get it, did not want to understand, did not want to learn. And Jesus, he just walks away. I mean, that blows my mind. Does that not blow your mind that Jesus, if people don't want to learn, Jesus doesn't force them to learn? Jesus, I, this, is, this is mind-boggling to me. Jesus is always right. Yet, he does not force his rightness on people. I could not handle that kind of power because I am not always right. In fact, there are occasions where I know I'm wrong and I am still trying to convince people that I'm right. Can you imagine Jesus always being right and sometimes just saying, forget it, I can't, I can't help you, I can't do anything for you. That's terrifying to think about. It's terrifying to think about that when people don't want to know the truth, Jesus will let you be wrong. What? That doesn't sound right. No, he's not going to force his way on you. In fact, Jesus had pointed this out multiple times. Some of you will remember back, there's the story in the book of Matthew chapter 12, where Jesus does another miracle, which he's constantly doing. There's a man who is demon-possessed. It's a spiritual reality that we don't engage with every day, or we don't always understand, but he's... They did, and he casts the demon out of this person. He does whatever, exorcism, right? Cast the demon out. And the crowd that's watching this looks at Jesus, and they say, oh, this guy, I think this guy's the real deal. I think he might be the Messiah. And do you remember what the Pharisees say in light of that miracle? They say, no way. He is only casting out demons by the power of Satan. So it doesn't matter what Jesus is going to do. He can say the exact right thing. He can do the exact right thing. And if people don't want to get it, they will not get it. They're saying that he is doing what he's doing by the power of Satan. Okay, well, whatever. Now, this is an important distinction because evidence won't convince people that don't want to be convinced. All the evidence in the world. You can have all the facts, all the statistics, all the everything. And if people don't want to be convinced, they're not going to hear you. Evidence won't convince people that don't want to be convinced. Because it's not a truth issue. It's a heart issue. But you know what we do when people are wrong? We just try to force more evidence on them. But it's not about evidence. It's not about truth. It's not about reality. It's about the heart. And something has to change in the heart. And Jesus knows, I can't help you there. That's a choice you have to make on your own. And he just leaves. Just goes to the other side of the lake. Jesus loves you, but he can't help you. Now, I want to point out that Jesus doesn't take issue with people that are confused. It's okay to be confused. I mean, just this morning, Rick Machinsky gets here, I don't know what time, 5.30 a.m., and he and I are talking, and he raises this question. I say, I don't know, Rick. That's a great question. Someday we're going to have to ask Jesus that question. Jesus doesn't mind if we get confused. Jesus is not bothered by people who are slow to get it. He loves people who are slow to get it. Jesus doesn't have a problem with people who are wrong. I mean, the cross exists because Jesus deeply cares about people who are wrong. That's the whole point of the cross. The problem is Jesus just can't help people who refuse to admit it. This should make us nervous. Because we all have something inside us that when someone points out that we're wrong, we don't like to admit it and we kind of buck up a little bit. And I know some of us might be sitting here thinking, okay, yeah, 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 that's true. Jesus doesn't, you know, when people are wrong. And, and this is a them problem. 
Because maybe you're thinking of a group or a label or a category of people. Maybe you're thinking about, oh yeah, those progressive people, they are wrong. Or those conservative people, they are wrong. Or those liberal people, they're wrong. Fundamental people, they're wrong. Those Democrats, they're wrong. Those Republicans, they're wrong. You pick whatever label, you know, whatever side you're on, the other side is wrong. But this isn't a them problem. This is a human problem. This is a human problem. All right, so maybe maybe some part of you is like, okay, all right, maybe, maybe, Maybe I'll, I'll just slightly admit that maybe I could have possibly slightly been wrong. But what, what am I supposed to do about it? If I'm wrong and I don't know it, how am I supposed to, well, what, how do I come back from that? Let me, give you, let, me, let me give you a little advice. And this comes from someone who's had a lot of practice being wrong. I think we should practice being wrong. I think you should practice it. Husbands, I think you should practice being wrong with your wives. When you're wrong, admit it. Say, honey, I was wrong. And your wives, if they're like my wife, will say, hey, can you say that one more time? I'm going to record that. I'm going to mark that down. What's the date and time? Wives, we should, you should practice being wrong with your husbands because they love you. You're married to them. Covenant marriage. You, got, you, you should practice. They're not going anywhere. You should practice saying you're wrong in that low-cost environment. You should practice saying wrong with low-cost topics that don't hurt as much. You should just practice that. Just get in the habit and build up that muscle of being wrong. But also, I think we should celebrate when people admit that they were wrong. I think we should celebrate it. Parents, you, your kids, when they're, they're able to come to you and say, I was wrong, you shouldn't be like, I knew it, I told you so, yeah, I'm right. You're, you shouldn't do that. You know why? Because you will teach your kids not to admit it. You won't teach your kids not to be wrong. They'll just hide it from you. Celebrate it. My dad read this, talked about the story of the prodigal son. What did the, the father do when the son admitted he was wrong? He threw a party. We should reward repentance, not condemn it, not judge it, not say, I'm better than you, not make ourselves feel more righteous. We should celebrate it when people can admit they're wrong because being wrong is part of repentance and should be part of our character. It should be a reflex. So it's not a question of if we are wrong. It's only a question of if we can admit it. So let me ask you a question. This is a series called Questions. I don't know if I mentioned that, but we're in part three series called questions when was the last time jesus changed your mind when was the last time jesus changed your mind you read something in the gospels and you're like you know what i haven't been doing that i haven't been living that way i haven't been thinking that i i i've i've been more like the pharisees i've been more like the bad guy in the story I, when was the last time jesus changed your mind and if it's been a while it means one of two things number one it means either you've just got it figured out and you just don't have anything uh to repent of which, let me just tell you right now, that's not what's going on. Or two, you're dealing with spiritual blindness, and you need to repent of that. When was the last time Jesus changed your mind? All right, this, this text goes on. It's a beautifully composed passage of Scripture, and I want you to see how the author ties it together, because it's amazing. So, Mark verse, uh, chapter 8, verse 14. Now, Jesus, of course, gets back in the boat. He just showed up at the shore. Uh, Pharisees asked him a question, turns around, heads out, and they're heading the other way. And it says in verse 14, it's a little setup for the story. It's great. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread, except for one loaf that they had with them. And they're sitting there thinking, oh, man, great. Who was in charge of bringing bread? Bar Bartholomew, you don't do anything else. Can you not just remember the bread? Come on, the bread. We don't have enough bread for, for eating. Now what are we going to do? And they're just, you know, arguing or wondering, you know, is it your fault? You didn't remember, whatever. And you can't just pull off on the highway McDonald's or whatever. 
Now, Jesus is in the other part of the boat, I imagine. I don't know. It doesn't say this. But Jesus is in the back. It's not a big boat. Jesus is in the back, and he's sitting there, and he's thinking, man, those Pharisees. Ah, that's such a spiritual, dead-end way of thinking. And he's just he's staring off into the sunset, thinking about, like, man, those Pharisees really bug me. I just wish I could help them. I love them, but they won't let me help them. They're spiritually blind, and that spiritual blindness just infects, and it, it gets into everything and everybody. And so he's sitting there thinking, and he says this phrase and he, to his, his disciples. He says, hey, guys, you, you need to be aware. Stay away from the yeast of the Pharisees, and of Herod. Now he's thinking about something totally different. Now the, the apostles are in this side of the boat thinking, he's talking about the bread. I told you we should have bought bread. Why didn't you bring bread? Jesus isn't thinking about bread, but he uses the word yeast, which, which has this oversized impact on bread. I don't know. I don't bake, but I imagine that's how this works. So he's saying, be careful. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. Jesus is thinking, be careful of that dead end way of thinking because there's no way back out. Verse 16, they discussed this with one another on this side of the boat. And they said, he's saying that because we brought no bread. It's not a big boat. Jesus can hear them talking. And Jesus says he's aware of their discussion. And I think he's exasperated because if you read this passage, I know we don't get toned, but if you read this passage with just a little bit of exasperation in Jesus' voice, he is about to rip off eight questions in four verses. And he's trying to make a point. He's, he's answering their dilemma by asking questions, by bringing to mind information they already have. So look at this, verse 17. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, why are you talking about having no bread? I imagine he said it like that. Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes to see but fail to see and ears to hear but fail to hear? And this is connected to the last story. And he's like, do you guys think this is about bread? Do you think I'm talking about bread? I don't care about bread. And then he does this, verse 18. And don't you remember this? Or Yeah, 18, first part of verse 18. For question number five. Don't you remember when I broke the five loaves of bread for the 5,000? How many basketfuls did you pick up? Twelve. All right. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basket uh, pieces did you pick up? Seven? And he said, do you still not understand? Notice he doesn't ever answer the question. He never gives them the answer. He just asks them questions and leads them to an answer. And he's saying, do you think this is about sandwiches and about food? Do you think if we're low on food that that is somehow a problem for me? Did you not just see what I did earlier, right before we got in the boat? And then did you not see what I told the Pharisees? They didn't get it. Do you not see that? But the difference is with the Pharisees, you just walked away. But with his apostles, because I think that there's a difference in heart, they don't get it. They're slow to get it. They're confused. But he works with them. Now he's exasperated, but he works with them. He loves them. He wants to bring them to understanding. He leaves them a trail of breadcrumbs to follow back to the truth. That's what he's doing with all those questions. As a, as a church, we work pretty hard not to force everyone to believe the same way. So if we were to go through the crowd, go through the lawn here and take a poll about different issues, you would hear some, some theological diversity. Now, there are some essentials, right? And essentials, we're unified. And everything else, liberty, right? That's a, that's a tenet of our heritage that's really important. And we work hard not to force everybody into some sort of cookie-cutter pattern of discipleship. We work hard to do that. 
We could, and some churches do, they lay out a list. Here's exactly what you need to believe, how you need to dress, how you need to vote. In fact, I've even heard rumors that this some churches say, give us your pay stubs. We want to know about your income so we can tell you exactly how you need to tithe. There are people who have visited churches like that, and of course that was there last Sunday, because they, these churches want to outline every single area of discipleship. Now some of you are thinking, that would be great, we need to do that. In fact, I've got a list, Patrick, you can preach this next Sunday, I know how I want everybody to believe. But that's not the practical reality of how Christianity works. God or Jesus intends for us to own, and every parent, every teacher, every boss knows this, that if you're around imposing the rules, you can get people to comply, but then as soon as you're away, they're not going to comply anymore unless their heart is transformed, unless they own those convictions and those rules. So as a church, we tried not to force people to agree with us and have some sort of homogenous or echo chamber as a church, and people would comply as long as they were afraid of rejection, but more importantly, we want to equip people to develop and own their own convictions. And the disciples don't get it, but unlike the Pharisees, Jesus, he doesn't directly answer them, but he helps them come to the right conclusion by asking questions. Honestly, so much of our spiritual growth, church, is not about learning more information. We don't need more information. What's the old saying that Christians are educated well beyond their level of obedience? We don't need more information. We actually need to do something with the information that we have. Uh, we keep saying, and you've heard this, uh, that we are in an unprecedented historical situation, right? I mean, we're having church outdoors with face masks. That's unprecedented. It's never happened before. Actually, that's not true. It has happened before. Exactly. 100 years ago, there was this thing called the Spanish flu that swept through the United States in 1918. They were coming off, in 1920, they were coming off four waves of the Spanish flu. Four waves that had gone through the nation. It had taken as many as 850,000 American lives. In fact, there's pictures, you can Google this, there's pictures of guys playing baseball in masks. They were having the same debate back then. Same exact, they were getting in fistfights about masks. There weren't any Walmarts that people could get in fights in, but they were getting in fights about masks in 1920. And there was a presidential election in 1920. They were actually just coming off of World War II. Do you know, anybody, real history buff, does anybody know who uh, the winning candidate in 1920 was? Warren Harding. What's that? Warren Harding. Oh, my goodness. All right. Gold star, wow. Eric. Wow. <laughs> Warren G. Harding. Now, here's for bonus points. Does anybody know what his campaign slogan was in 1920? Wow. I am super impressed. He knows his campaign slogan was return to normalcy. You could just totally bring 1920 into 2020. A hundred years ago, rewind. We're dealing with the exact same things. This is not new. This is not unprecedented. Listen, this is new to us. And here's the truth, Christians, that sometimes we are dealing with a situation where our faith is actually being tested and it is difficult. We maybe haven't been tested to this degree, and now we're having to figure out, how do I love people with whom I disagree? How do I show grace and respect to people that I'm not sure I agree? That's what we're dealing with, and Christians, some Christians are not handling the test very well. This is not new. This is just new to us, and we're struggling with it. But you know what? The reality of how we should respond, Jesus doesn't have a new set of rules for 2020. 
What Jesus is asking us to do as disciples of himself is the same thing he's been asking disciples to do for the last 2,000 years. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. If someone asks you to go one mile, go with them two miles. If someone asks for your cloak, give them your coat as well. Don't hate. Don't lust. It's, <laughs> it's not that Jesus is giving us new rules. It's that he's asking us to implement what we already know. That's the only difference. That's the only difference. And Christians are, some of us are struggling with it because we're actually being called to sacrifice and to consider other people over ourselves. All right, last section. Almost done. Um, and, and this is, uh, the reason I'm bringing this up is because this particular passage of scripture would be overlooked. We would assume this doesn't have anything to do with the last two texts that we've been reading. All right, so Jesus has been dealing with people who are spiritually blind. They won't admit it, and then people who are spiritually blind, and he's willing to help his disciples. He's been dealing with spiritual blindness. Have you ever, um, those of, some of you will care about this, some of you won't. Have you ever heard the phrase, the fourth wall? It's about um, movies, television. And, and, and typically, when you're watching a TV show, you are an unparticipating un, un observer. You're the fly on the wall. You don't get acknowledged. But there's some TV shows every once in a while where the character will turn and look right at the camera as if they're looking right at you and say something. They want the audience to, to be a part of this story. It's breaking the fourth wall is what that's called. And, and typically, you're not supposed to look at the camera. But in this case, they're doing something intentionally. That's what's going on in this next passage of Scripture. Mark chapter 8. Jesus, right at the end, uh, Jesus is, has been healing people. He's been, he's been asking questions. He's been walking on water. He's been given bread. His, his, the Pharisees don't get it, and he leaves. The apostles don't get it, and he walks them through a series of eight questions. And the very next thing that happens is there's a blind man, and Jesus is going to heal him. Verse 25. I want you to notice this. This is so cool. This is how the author describes. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. This is one of those two-stage miracles, and it's odd. Why was Jesus doing this two-stage miracle? Once more, Jesus put his hand on the man's eyes. And this is where I feel like the author is turning and looking at us, the audience, and saying, are you going to get this? Are you going to get this? Are you listening? And then he says this. Then his eyes were open. Well, that would be enough, but that's not where Mark ends. Mark continues and says, his sight was restored. Well, that would be enough. You're really getting redundant here, Mark. And then he says, and he saw everything. Okay, we get it. Clearly, that's what the passage says. He repeats himself three times because I think he's looking at us. The last two chapters have happened and he's saying, hey, this blind guy, I can help the blind guy see, but I can't help seeing guys if they don't want to see. I can't help them. I can't heal them because they don't want to be healed. I can heal the blind guy and I can help him. I love it. I just, the Bible, I think, is so cool. Do we have eyes to see? Do we have ears to hear? All right, everything we've talked about, both of the concepts uh, of the Jesus interacting with the Pharisees and Jesus interacting with the disciples can be wrapped up, I think, into one question that we should wrestle with. And it's this question. How is Jesus challenging you right now? How is Jesus challenging you right now? Now, I appreciate what my dad said during the communion. Jesus did not come to condemn the world, but to save the world. But he did come to challenge the world. And sometimes we interpret a challenge as condemnation. Nope. From someone that loves us, a challenge is an opportunity to get back on the right track. How is Jesus challenging you right now? What sin 
in your life is Jesus trying to draw out? Is it pride? Is it greed? Is it anger? What, what is Jesus challenging you with right now? Because he's calling you to a deeper, closer relationship with himself. He's not wanting to leave you where you are. But some of us are like the Pharisees, like, Jesus, just, just do something, and then I'll, I'll really get right with you. And Jesus is like, no, I need your heart. And some of us are like the apostles who are like, Jesus has given us chance after chance after chance to get it, and he'll give us more chances because he loves us. But it's because we are coming to him with humble meek, seeking hearts. How is Jesus challenging us right now? How is he helping us confront our wrongness? How is Jesus helping us own our faith? That's Mark chapter 8. It's so good. It's so good what the author is trying to do and what he's trying to teach us. We're going to continue our series uh, questions next week. Caleb is going to be speaking about one of the most uh, in, uh, engaging questions in uh, the scriptures in Mark chapter 9, and I'll let him outline that next week. And then we'll follow that uh, Steve is going to be speaking about the most important question, I think, that exists in the Gospels. So hopefully he knows that. I'm not surprising him right now. All right, let's go ahead and say a word of prayer. And uh, then st stick around if you can, socially distance, say hi, uh, be friendly, fellowship. We, uh, we just love being able to be here on the lawn on a beautiful day like today. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we're so grateful, um, so grateful for your truth. And God, we know that we in our lives, even well-intentioned, uh, with good intentions, have sometimes deviated so far from it. Uh, but God, we know that it is in your love that you pull us back on the trail. And so God, we pray that we'd have hearts that are willing to admit that, that the pride that keeps us doing the wrong thing and, and just sinking deeper into our, our, our own wrongness, you would just trip that away. And we know it's painful, God, but it's worth it. It's worth it to follow you. God, there's so many areas in our culture, in our country right now, where people are in conflict. God, I pray that we would be disciples, that we would be points of light on a hill, shining your love in this world. God, help us to live out what you've called us to live out. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We'll talk to you next week.